Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I hope everyone had a safe and happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully you were all able to connect with friends and family without traveling. We need to remain vigilant as COVID-19 continues to surge across the country. And since many people did not heed the warning and did travel, I fear it's only going to get worse. Now, there are several vaccines in the works. However, they will take some time to come to the point where they can be administered And the rollout will, of course, be hierarchical with those most in need receiving it first. And therefore, it will be some time before healthy adults will be able to receive the vaccine. And, of course, we will have to contend at some point with anti-vaccine factions who will most likely refuse to receive the vaccine at all. So the best thing we can do now is to continue as we have with mask wearing, hand washing, and social distancing. So let's unfortunately start out tonight with a bit of bad news. Um, It's certainly not the worst news in the world, but it is a sad ending. We are going to talk about the famous Arecibo Observatory, but Have no fear. Once we talk about this, we'll move on to more upbeat and interesting uh, news. So Arecibo Observatory, which was built into a hillside in Puerto Rico, has unfortunately had two support cable failures in the last year. And so now the National Science Foundation is reporting that unfortunately there is no safe way to repair the almost 50-year-old radio telescope. The observatory has been instrumental in studying pulsars and has, perhaps most famously, been used as part of the SETI project, which of course seeks to connect with alien intelligences. But in the last 15 years, it has struggled to find funding as the NSF has reduced its operating budget, in part because newer, more compact observatories have been created. And so, as noted, the telescope is almost 50 years old, and so it's not working with state-of-the-art equipment anymore. Now, the budget is not actually what has caused its downfall, but rather time and the ravages of metal fatigue. Work was underway to repair the dish in August after the first failure, but as they were making plans, one of the main cables on the same tower snapped in November. This was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, as it had only been supporting around 60% of its rated minimum breaking strength. And so... Engineers looked at it and decided that it was too dangerous to try and make repairs, as the instrument platform, which is actually suspended high above the reflector dish, could fall at any time if another cable snapped, and it could therefore do serious damage to any workers. And so three out of four of the engineering groups that 
the NSF consulted agreed that it was too dangerous to make any repairs and that they just didn't have the ability to move on. Until these assessments came in, our question was not if the observatory should be repaired, but how, said NSF's Ralph Guillaume. But in the end, a preponderance of data showed that we simply could not do this safely, and that is a line we cannot cross. And so, again, newer observatories have made the need for Arecibo less important. It's still been an important point of science outreach, not only as a popular icon, but also as a main outreach point for Puerto Rico's citizenry to interface with active science research, and also the site of many other programs besides its main objective. And so some of those other projects will remain open as the telescope is decommissioned. It will definitely be a shame to see it go, but it's just not worth the risk to human life. Okay, so again, we're going to move on now to much more uplifting stories, and we are going to continue, though, our theme, so sort of, of communication, because, of course, Arecibo was supposed to help us potentially communicate with alien intelligences. Um, and so we are going to talk about the amazing work by a team of undergraduates at Rochester Institute of Technology who built their own imaging device despite the ongoing pandemic and uncovered a medieval manuscript page, which was actually a palimpsest which had previously been used to write a completely different book from the one currently visible on the page. And so the team used multispectral imaging, which had already been successful in reading fragments of scrolls from the Dead Sea and from ancient Egypt. The project featured 19 students enrolled in a course called the Innovative Freshman Experience, offered by RIT's Chester F. Carlson Center for Imaging Science. The course brings together an interdisciplinary group of students to solve a particular problem. This year's problem was to build a multispectral imaging system to analyze historical documents. Now, generally, this would be a project which would culminate in a presentation at the annual RIT Creativity and Innovation Festival in the spring. But as we all know, the COVID-19 pandemic hit in March of this year, and as with pretty much every other college in the country, RIT closed its doors and sent students home. In order to finish the project, the students broke up into four smaller groups, each tasked with completing one aspect of the project. One produced a technical manual for the imaging system, one produced an end-user guide, one produced a research paper, and the final produced a video documentary about their project. And so, if all goes well, they'll be able to present their findings next year. Something really valuable that we've done in the absence of being able to work on the system in person is integrate more useful workplace skills into our learning, Liz Stublin, a photographic sciences student, said in May. When we were building the system, a few of us were focused on programming and 3D modeling, and now we've been able to shift the focus for the whole class to be able to develop their skills in that area. 
So even though this is not a great situation, we've been able to turn things to maximize the benefit from this time. And so three students, Zoe Lalania, Lisa Enox, and Malcolm Zale, actually spent their summer completing the physical machine. When classes resumed in the fall, they were able to begin to examine the 15th century medieval manuscript, the 15th century medieval manuscript leaves housed in the RIT's Cary Graphic Arts Collection. The collection was initially gathered together by historian and collector Otto Egg, who regularly gathers leaves from damaged or incomplete manuscripts in order to create collections to be studied. They found that one page was, as I mentioned, a palimpsest, which featured multiple layers of writing. The underwriting was in a, quote, dark French cursive, according to La Lainia. Now, because parchment was an expensive material in the Middle Ages, you probably know that it was often scraped off with basically just a normal uh, knife, and that would basically take off the top layer of the um, ink, and a lot of times it looks completely new. You can't tell that there was anything there at all with the naked eye. But of course, due to the chemical composition of the ink, the original text can often be imaged using either UV or infrared light. And so we've been doing a lot more of that in recent years, and we found a lot of really cool things. Now, the students hope to test all 30 pages available in Egg's collection to see if others are palimpsests. The students have supplied incredibly important information about at least two of our manuscript leaves here in the collection, and in a sense have discovered two texts we didn't know were in the collection, said Steve Galbraith, curator of the Cary Graphics Arts Collection. Now we have to figure out what those texts are, and that's the power of spectral imaging in cultural institutions. To fully understand our own collections, we need to know the depth of our collections, and imaging science helps reveal all of that to us. So that's very cool. Um, I really like being able to see where they're able to re-image information that would otherwise have been lost to us forever. And so a lot of these manuscript pages are fairly unique in the sense that, um, of course, as we know, all of these were painstakingly hand uh, copied by monks in monasteries, and a lot of those monasteries were burned down uh, either on purpose or by mistake because there are lots of flammable materials in a monastery um, at any time, and especially in libraries um, where a lot of this work would have been being done. Uh, and so a lot of them are perhaps the only surviving copy of that particular work or of that particular scribe's work. And so to be able to find new ones that we didn't know had survived is very cool. Okay, so let us move on now from the written word to spoken language. New research suggests that the building blocks for language evolved in the common ancestor of humans, apes, and monkeys, making them at least 40 million years old. 
the last shared ancestor of all three groups had evolved the ability to detect relationships between sounds. This is one of the fundamental skills necessary for understanding languages. Not only must you know what each word in a sentence means, you also need to be able to discern how words are structured grammatically. Learning how to recognize and interpret the relationship between phrases in a sentence is fundamental to how, brain process, how brains process language. To test whether this ability was present in the common ancestor, the researchers took subjects from all three groups, humans, chimpanzees, and marmosets, which are a type of old world monkey. The researchers created an original language, quote unquote, of audio tones from six acoustic categories, which were then grouped to form sentences. They tested whether subjects from each species could recognize when a sentence was structured incorrectly. They found, quote, notable similarities in all the primate subjects' responses. A sentence can have words that are connected by context and grammar rather than simply being next to one another, for instance. So think back to your childhood days of diagramming sentences. I know that we all enjoyed doing that. Um, I know that I certainly did. <laughs> Not really, obviously. But um, that allows us to understand the structure of sentences so that we now know, for instance, that in the sentence, the squirrel that ate the seeds ran away, we know that ran away refers to the squirrel rather than the seeds. And so in order to mimic this sort of structure, the researchers composed computer-generated sounds that could be combined into sequences like phrases in a sentence. Of course, these sounds are meaningless, said lead study author Stuart Watson, a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Comparative Linguistics at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. But the fact that sound A always occurs in the same sequence as sound B gave them a kind of relationship one could begin to compare with syntax. The researchers taught 24 humans, 17 chimps, and 16 marmosets these artificial grammar sequences, and then recorded their responses to grammar, which did not conform to the established rules. In order to teach the non-human subjects the grammar, we exposed them to the sounds for five hours spread out over a week before testing whether they had learned anything, Watson said. Now, prior experiments had established that monkeys have the ability to recognize grammatical violations. Chimps and humans diverged just some five to six million years ago. If it was absent in chimps, it would suggest that the ability developed independently in monkeys and in humans via convergent evolution, which is the effect of two different species independently developing the same or very similar evolutionary trait. And so we see that in all sorts of places in the animal kingdom. Um, animals that are very, very similar, but are not genetically um, connected. So my favorite example of that is the one that always blows my mind, which is that of vultures. And so new world vultures and old world vultures 
are basically very, very distantly related. They are not related closely at all. And so they just both developed to have the same features of a bald head and other um, evolutionary ways in which they are adapted to being carrion eaters. And so whenever I found that out, the first time I found that out, I was just amazed at how interesting um, and varied the ways that evolution can shape animals. So it can create basically two animals that are functionally basically the same, but do it from two different beginning points. Um, and that's so cool to me. I think that um, that is one of the coolest uh, examples of evolution in action is the fact that you have these two bird species that are relatively the same and yet are not closely related at all. Okay, and so if it was able to be perceived by all of the primates, then it would point to the ability arising in the common ancestor and being conserved throughout the groups. So um, one of the things that we know about um, evolution is that some things are highly conserved and some things kind of come and go. So we talked about that um, last week with color, with color, that sometimes colors are lost and then they re-emerge. And in this case, it is the fact that these things are actually highly conserved. And so they continue through the genome as the animals develop. It continues to have this particular trait be one that is carried on. And so they found that all three groups were able to recognize bad grammar, quote unquote. For the non-human subjects, this meant spending more time looking toward the speakers when hearing audio sequences that broke the grammatical rules. Presumably, this was because they were sort of confused or disturbed by the dissonance, and so they denoted that by looking at the speakers. And of course, you can sort of uh, anthropomorphize them by thinking, you know, they're looking at the speakers being like, wait, what? <laughs> um and so, of course, there are obviously still many questions remaining, according to the researchers. If primates have the intelligence necessary to process these complex acoustic sequences, why don't they produce similar, why don't they produce structures of similar complexity in their own communication system? Watson asked. Now, it may be because this is a unique capability of humans. Though, as longtime listeners will know, I am always very dubious of the idea of capabilities that are unique to humans. And so another option is that it's also possible that other primates possess these capabilities for communicating with each other, and we just haven't identified them yet, Watson said. And so, as we all know, there's a lot to animal cognition that remains unexplored and identified. So that is a distinct possibility. Okay, let's move on now to other forms of communication. Let us start by talking about iridescent colors in nature. But first, I do want to take a short break to do some PSAs and some show promos 
And then we are going to come back and we are going to talk about, again, iridescent colors in nature. So please hang on for just a minute. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. And as always, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so again, we are going to talk about iridescent colors in nature. Iridescence is tricky to study because the hue that you see depends on the position of the viewer and the direction of light, said senior author Dr. Amanda Franklin of the School of Biosciences. That means that iridescent colors change constantly 
so it's hard to see how they can convey reliable information. The number one rule for communication is that the information must be reliable. It's the same for both animals and humans. Now, despite this drawback, iridescent colors are actually widespread. Co-author and PhD student Leslie No explains, By studying how animals detect and process iridescence, we can get a better idea of when iridescence is actually a useful communication signal. Now, reliable iridescent signals usually come with behavioral or physical adaptations that help the animal to control the visual effect. For example, male Anna's hummingbirds precisely control their courtship flights so that their iridescent throat appears a constant bright pink color to watchful females. Now, through evolution, animals have adapted microstructures to produce specific effects, and some actually use those microstructures to control the precise angle at which the hue of iridescent colors appears to shift, which allows them to control the information that they are communicating, according to Dr. Franklin. Now, many studies have suggested that these flashy colors are important for courtship or camouflage, but they rarely take the time to explore how the colors are actually perceived by animals. Because of this, notes Newt, um, it's NG, and I never know how to pronounce it, and I feel very bad. Um, and so I think it's no, but I'm not positive. We know very little about how iridescence is processed in the animal's brain. The detection of these signals are dependent on how organisms display the color patches and the physical position of both the, to both the signaler and the viewer. For instance, an iridescent color can be processed differently when flashed quickly versus if the colors are, flat, are fast moving. And so lead author Professor Debbie Stewart-Box says that the findings shed new light on the colorful world of animal communication, but also highlight the challenges of studying accurately how iridescent colors work in nature. Nature provides a testing ground for the detection and processing of dynamic and colorful signals, she said, understanding how animals reliably use and produce these shifting signals can help the development of bio-inspired iridescent materials designed for human observers, which of course is generally the hope is to be able to use these things, at least in some respect. Okay, so let us move now to talk about firefly communication. Every year, for just two weeks in June, the forests of the southeast United States are the host to swarms of thousands of male fireflies, synchronized in a twilight mating dance. And so it's actually funny. I witnessed this once, I would say probably 35 years ago or so in my hometown. And so it must have been a particularly warm summer or Maybe this also used to happen in the Northeast. I remember it as being one of the most magical things I ever saw. My mom and I still talk about it sometimes. And so if you're ever in the Southeast during June, you should definitely look out for this. It is so cool. And it has also been a mystery for centuries as to how these beetles coordinate their dance of light. 
everything from wind exposing their glowing abdomens to an illusion caused by the viewer's own blinking to simple coincidence has been suggested as the culprit. And so we now know that the phenomena is indeed real and that they are actually synchronizing. And of course, we wanted to find out how and why. And so we've used mathematical modeling to show how synchrony develops over time. But the true mechanism by which the synchronization occurred was still a mystery. Is it something hardwired in fireflies that make them want to synchronize? Said physicist Raphael Sarfati of the University of Colorado Boulder. Or is it something more context-dependent, maybe based on their environment? Sarfati and his team have cracked the mystery by adding a missing element in other research, three-dimensional space. The researchers took stereoscopic video of firefly swarms in the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in Tennessee using two 360-degree cameras and then reconstructed the flashing in 3D space. They found that the answer was much more simple than anyone had really thought. The fireflies are simply synchronized by copying fireflies around them. And so the team filmed for around 90 minutes a day, starting half an hour after sunset, and recorded as the fireflies started to glow and then began to flash in a repeated pattern. A few short flickers in a cluster, followed by a pause of a few seconds, followed by more flickering. This led, as the fireflies began to synchronize, to the light seeming to ripple across the terrain in waves. They found that the swarm stayed within around six and a half feet above the ground and that the shape of the swarm conformed to the shape of the terrain. Now, this is assumed to be because it's important for them to keep in view of the females who stay closer to the ground. And so what they did was the researchers actually isolated individual fireflies in a tent and observed that they lost all sense of the rhythm occurring in the surrounding area. They'd flicker sporadically, completely out of sync with the main swarm. They then began to add other individuals and found that up to 15 fireflies continued to flash erratically. But with higher numbers, the synchronization re-emerged. When you start putting 20 fireflies together, that's when you start observing what you see in the wild, Safardi said. You've got regular bursts of flashes, and they're all synchronized. And so this suggests that the synchronization is social. It requires them to be able to interact with each other, and especially in a larger group. And so the fireflies respond to neighbors, which results in a ripple of light, a bit like the wave at a sports game, apparently. <laughs> now, of course, the why was still up for grabs, and unfortunately, that is still a mystery. One theory suggests that the synchrony developed in order to have dark intervals in which the males can look for the fainter flashes of the female beetles, 
as they responded to the mating dance. The researchers also helped refine the mathematical modeling, which the researchers suggest will be a valuable tool for studying the flash patterns of other firefly species. Now, figuring out how this occurs and why could lead to insights into other instances of synchrony in nature. This kind of synchrony occurs in many natural systems, said physicist Orit Peleg of CU Boulder. The cells in our heart all flex and contract at the same time. Neurons in our brain also synchronize. And, as with much in nature, we can use our knowledge for practical uses. Synchronization is an important part of many technologies, such as radio communications, GPS, and parallel computing. And we've begun to develop swarm robotics, where a swarm of small robots is synchronized to work together, much like insects, in order to perform a specific task. And, perhaps most importantly in my view, this research can help the fireflies themselves, hopefully. So many people have had positive experiences with fireflies, says Sarfati. They're also very fad fragile. Many species are on the decline around the world because there is more and more light pollution. And so, again, I know I see a lot less of them than I did as a child. Even if I only saw them swarm once, though, I still really enjoy them. And um, I love seeing them at the 4th of July. So um, unfortunately, didn't happen this year. But generally, I have a standing uh, rendezvous with my um, husband's aunt and uncle. And they live over in Amherst near UMass. And so we go there every year. And um, we are able to sit in sort of a side yard near their house and watch the fireworks without having to actually go down into the chaos, which is actually people at the stadium. Um, I did that once many, many years ago. I think I was actually still in college, maybe. And it was madness. And we couldn't find anyone. If you left, you would never find your friends again. And it was just crazy. But I like doing it with... um my husband's aunt and uncle because there there's a little patch of land and it's near some uh wetland so unfortunately that means there are a lot of mosquitoes but it also means that there are fireflies and so that is really nice to be able to hang out with them and to be able to see the fireflies okay so let's move on now and talk about another form. We're actually going to talk about something other than communications, I should say. And so this first story is something that I have kind of had open in a tab for a long time now, but nothing ever really seemed to make sense for um, doing it. And so... Um, it never sort of flowed into one of the shows that I wanted to produce. And so tonight we are going to get to it. And so it does actually sort of wrap into what we've been talking about tonight because it is 
talking about middle fatigue. And of course, unfortunately, that was the downfall for the Arecibo telescope is metal fatigue. And of course, metal fatigue is a big problem. And so Johns Hopkins University researchers have found a way to reliably predict vulnerabilities in metals earlier than current tests. The researchers detail a new method of microscopic testing of metals, which allows them to rapidly inflict repetitive stresses on materials while recording how the damage evolves and causes cracks. We're now able to have a more fundamental understanding of what leads up to cracks, said lead author Jafar Al-Awadi, or Al-Awadi, excuse me. The practical implication is that it will allow us to understand and predict when or how the material is going to fail. And so the problem with metal fatigue is something called cyclic loading. Basically, it's the constant strain that a material is under, such as when the steel of a bridge is being uh, pounded by vehicles going over it all the time, or the shifts in air pressure, which stress the metallic covering of an airplane. Because if you remember, airplanes are basically covered by a very thin skin of um, aluminum. And so aluminum is obviously a very versatile uh, metal, but it's also very uh, prone to wind shear and to actually getting cracks and shearing off itself. Um, so it's very important to be able to track that and figure out how to potentially um, be able to keep that from happening. Obviously, <laughs> we definitely want to keep that from happening. Um, and so uh, Alawadi notes, Fatigue failure plagues all metals, and mitigating it is of great importance. It is the leading cause of cracks in metallic components of aircraft. And so the problem is manifested in costly bills for the airline industry because it adheres to regular replacement schedules for many parts. But the research suggests that the lifespan of those parts could be more precisely determined by better understanding the origins of crack development. But for instance, in September, French investigators actually called for design reviews of the Airbus A380 to examine if they had guarded against metal fatigue risks in the actual design. So that would be problematic if they hadn't. With the lack of understanding of the mechanisms that lead to crack initiation, it has been difficult to predict with any reasonable accuracy the remaining life of a cyclically loaded material, Elowadi said. The component could actually be fine and never fail, but they throw it away solely on the basis of statistical arguments. That's a huge waste of money. And so current tests to understand crack formation have focused on the period right before the crack forms or even after the effect to see what happened to the metal. They also require large samples, which rules out being able to look at the material on a sub-micrometer scale. And so this new method allows much smaller material samples and can look down to the sub-micrometer level, 
and look at the molecular structure long before a crack actually forms. And so the way they did this was by looking at something called persistent slip bands, which form in metals during cyclic loading and are one of the most important transitions to a cracked metal. And so the present study looked at pure nickel, but they suggest that the fundamental mechanisms identified are common to many metals. And so hopefully this will lead to new guidelines for the use of materials under cyclic loading. And so that is very important because as we know, uh, metal fatigue, it is a huge, huge problem. We definitely see it in all sorts of places. Um, I, one of the examples that comes to mind is from one of my other, uh, pursuits, which is, of course, my interest in all things, uh, paranormal, even though I don't believe in the paranormal. I find the sociology of people who do believe in the paranormal to be, um, absolutely fascinating. And so an example I think of is the really unfortunate uh, Silver Bridge collapse that is associated with Mothman, uh, but was caused by uh, metal fatigue, I believe. Um, I think that one of the um, one of the braces just gave way because it had been uh it just had too much fatigue. And of course, we know that this happened with Arecibo. And, um, a lot of times it does happen with airplanes. And, um, if you've ever had machinery, sometimes, you know, things just eventually crack and break. And, um, it's really important to be able to figure out how this happens so that we can build better, better materials that are most importantly safer. Um, because a lot of metal is used in things like airplanes and bridges, which are very important to be, maintain the maximum amount of safety with. Okay, so let us move on now and talk about a couple of stories that have to do with rare earth elements. And so these are a set of 17 chemical elements that are basically essential in manufacturing technological devices. Everything from smartphones and disk drives to wind turbines, satellites, electric vehicles, medical equipment, the list goes on and on. Now, despite being called rare, they're actually relatively abundant in the Earth's crust. But the reason that they are called rare is because they're not found in easy-to-mine veins the way you find, say, gold or silver. Mining the materials is usually costly, both from a monetary and especially environmental perspective. And so a lot of these are mined in places where, because of the environmental degradation and because of their uh, relative uh, monetary value, they end up being in conflict areas because people want to control these really expensive uh, elements and other people are end up being hurt by the fact that they are really badly uh, mined from an environmental perspective. And it's just, it's not good. It's very uh, unfortunate. A lot of our technology uh, is 
definitely tainted by this problem of these elements being hard to find. And so a new study led by geologist Michael Anberg, Annenberg from the Australian National University looked into the chemical mechanisms of the origins of REEs under the surface, especially their connection to igneous carbonatite rocks. These rare rocks and their altered and weathered derivatives provide most of the world's REE, the researchers explained in the new paper. No unified model explains all features of carbonatite-associated REE deposits, strongly impairing exploration required to secure future supply. And so, to explore the mineralization processes behind carbonatite-associated REE deposits, the researchers simulated what happens when the rocks are heated up under high pressure and then cooled and depressurized in a way that mimics the the natural magmatic processes. So basically, these are um, rocks that are associated with magnet, with um, not magnetism, with lava flows and magma. Uh, So with volcanic activity. (laughs) Sorry. The aim was to understand what concentrates REE from an entire carbonate body to a highly to a high-grade localized deposit, Annenberg explained on his Twitter account. <laughs> so we decided, let's put a carbonatite in a capsule and test it ourselves. Now, previously, it was thought that certain ligands, molecules which can bind to REEs, including chlorine and fluorine, were necessary to make REEs soluble, which is capable of forming crystallized concentrations which could then be mined. But the experiment showed that instead it was actually alkaline chemicals such as sodium and potassium which helped them to become more soluble. And so the researchers suggest that alkali-bearing carbonatites are capable of forming REE-rich fluids which can move long distance, long distances in magmatic-like conditions. Now, of course, this isn't a sure bet. Nature is a lot more messy than the lab. There's a lot more things going on there. Uh, They didn't have water in this example. Um, But it is a start to truly understanding these important chemical elements. This is an elegant solution that helps us understand better where, quote, heavy rare earths like dyspropium, dyspropium, and light rare earths like neodymium may be concentrated in and around carbonatite intrusions, explained senior author and geologist Francis Wall from the University of Exeter in the UK. We were always looking for evidence of chlorine-bearing solutions but failing to find it. This result gives us new ideas. So, of course, if you're looking for chlorine and it's really alkalines you need to be looking for, that's not going to be helpful. (laughs) And so, if we can't find them on Earth, though, we may be able to mine them from space rocks. Recent experiments aboard the International Space Station show that microbes can harvest REEs from rocks, even in microgravity conditions. 
Microbes can be specific in the sorts of elements they bind, and they allow us to do away with large quantities of environmentally destructive chemicals like cyanides, traditionally used to leach elements from rocks. Charles Cockle, the lead author of the new study and an astrobiologist at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, explained... These days, we can even engineer them to be better miners. Now, the microbes mine, quote-unquote, by producing sugars which bind to REEs and cause them to concentrate together, making extraction easier. The current test wanted to check if altered gravity would affect the microbes' ability to do this important work because such microgravity conditions are known to influence microbial growth and metallic processes, according to the study. Low, low gravity is known to reduce the settling of microbes and so reduce the mixing and flowing of nutrients to microbes and waste away from them, said Cockle. So we could expect that this might indirectly influence the growth of the microbes and how they interact with rocks and thus their ability to biomine these rocks. Now, three bacteria were featured in the experiment. Sphingomonas decilibus, Bacillus subtilis, and Cupria vetus metallodurans. And so the experiment was actually commissioned by the European Space Agency as a part of its BioRock experiment, which took place in 2019 on the International Space Station. Now, the goal was to see if microbes could leach REEs from basalt, which is a good analog for rocks that are found on, for instance, the moon and Mars. And so they measured the efficacy of extraction of the microbes in three different conditions, microgravity, Mars gravity, and Earth gravity. Now, they did this by placing the microbes in a miniature biomining reactor known as cubic. This is an incubator that controls the temperature, but it also contains a ring that spins around, a centrifuge, explains Cockle. We put our biomining reactors in the ring and spun them at exactly the right speed to simulate Mars and Earth gravity. The Earth gravity being a control experiment to make comparisons. And so only one bacteria, S. desicabalis, uh, was able to leach REEs under these conditions, under all three conditions, I should say. The others showed either poor performance or none at all. And so why only this one bacteria? The researchers think it's because it produces lots of long-chain sugars that have many binding sites on them that bound the rare earth elements. Now, the other microbes didn't do this, Cockle said, adding... We did wonder whether the other microbes might be simulated into doing biomining by the stressful conditions of lack of nutrients in microgravity, which is why we sent them. But microgravity did not change their ability or allow them to micro to bio biomine. And so, of course, we can't just say, oh, this is great and release them onto the surface of the moon or Mars or anything like that. Uh, they would need to be in bioreactors. But the researchers can envision gas and fluid-filled bioreactors, which might be set up 
near lunar habitats, for instance, or on Mars, or even on asteroids. Now, of course, right now, there are no plans in the works to do this in reality. At the moment, that's not economically viable. However, biomining and other forms of mining can be used to provide the elements needed for long-term human presence in space. Our experiment has explored and demonstrated the potentially important role of microbes in facilitating the human expansion into space, he said. And that's Cockrell, um, or Cockle. The team's next adventure is Bioasteroid, which is combining meteorite material to stand in for asteroid rock and adding fungi to seeing how well they fare at biomining. So, of course, we will have to uh, wait for those results, and uh, maybe they'll find something that's even better than this particular bacteria. Because, again, anything that we can do to be able to get at these elements more easily is going to be really important for our ability to continue to produce all of these fancy electronic equipments and gadgets that we basically have become uh, addicted to. And so obviously that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, a lot of these things do really important work. And so we really do need these elements, but it would be really, really great if we could find them in ways that aren't detrimental to the environment and to actual human beings often in places that we don't think very much about, like in parts of Africa. Um, and of course, this is pushing up against one of the other big topics, which is space exploration right now. And so I have to say that I am um, very happy with SpaceX and their ability to bring astronauts to the International Space Station. I think it's really important for Americans to have that ability um, and not have to rely on Roscosmos because um, there's a lot going on at Roscosmos right now, uh, which is the Russian uh, version of NASA. And so not being reliant on them is a really good idea uh, because that's what we had to do for a while. We had to basically rely on uh, Russian rockets to get us to the ISS. And um, of course, there's talk now about whether or not what the long-term plans are for the ISS, but hopefully uh, it will continue to be um, a place where we can do these kinds of experiments, or maybe we'll start to devise a new and even better version of the ISS. So of course, uh, this is not the first space station we've had in low Earth orbit. We had Skylab prior to this. Um, and so hopefully there will be a next generation, um, space station that will again be an international collaboration. Um, hopefully we are going to step back a little bit from our, uh, seeming stance of militarizing space with the, um, ridiculous space force, um, that was created. Um, unfortunately, I fear that now that it's been created, it can't be uncreated. Um, but I think it's very important that we remember that space is 
international. It does not belong to Americans or to any other country. Uh, we are supposed to be sharing it. It's supposed to be one of those things that we all agree upon. So let's continue to do that. And obviously, I have mixed feelings about space travel. Uh, there was a story that I didn't get to talk about tonight, which uh, seems to indicate a new research into a bunch of different, um, a meta review, I believe, of um, research into how space affects humans that suggests that it might actually accelerate aging, uh, being in space for a period of time. And so we know that there are other known problems. Um, we still haven't solved the issues of bone density as much as we would like to, of, um, the problems with your eyes that you get, um, and a host of other things that are affected by having sustained time in microgravity. And so I think it's really important that we continue to find ways to actually continue to live on the planet that we already have. Um, and so, for instance, maybe work on something a little more feasible, like what are we going to do when the next planet-killing asteroid comes along? Um, that would be good. Of course, we also just need to work on keeping the world habitable to begin with. And so uh, focusing again on our own environment and on keeping the Earth habitable is, I think, always a better plan than looking for an exit strategy. Um, but for tonight, that is all the time we have together. So I will be back next week. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.